Yeah. Why did I think that was January? Because time has no meaning. Yeah, time has no meaning now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I went to the library the other day just because, like, uh, in a similar process, I'm like, I don't want to pass an entire year without having visited the library being, like, my favorite place. And then I was there. It was like, no, we were here in March. (laughs) But it still felt very nice. It was kind of a drag, though. Oh, uh, how, how is it different? I haven't been there. Um... It's fine. I mean, it's open. All of the, all of the information desks are sealed off and they have to, or they have like one-way markings in the stacks, which is, which is fine, but you can still like walk right up to the manga section if you want and like pull some books. Uh, The rooftop garden is currently closed. Oh. Mm. uh That's a drag. And they are also not accepting donations, which I read about online and confirmed in person. And I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> mm. can't chop off books here <laughs> <laughs> well i mean we're at least halfway through this pandemic so we don't know that <laughs> well we we know more than we did two months ago we we have been in this for 10 yeah. months i think that's that's yeah. what we can say <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah, we'll have, we'll have to see with vaccines, but I know that's been my little pinhole of light in the distance. Okay, well, I guess we've <laughs> officially started. So welcome back, everyone, to the Trade Waiters. Thank you for waiting for the Trade Waiters. We are still here, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> we just yeah. keep, we keep waiting and waiting and waiting in the trades. They just don't come. Like, yeah, yeah. Stuck with that. The post is a mess. <laughs> I've read so few comics in the last um, I, however many months it's been. Yeah, I was really disappointed in myself that uh, when lockdown first started, I was like, oh, I'm going to read so much. And that very quickly got derailed. <laughs> I feel like I did okay. I've been reading through old books on my bookshelf that I never got around to reading uh, in, a, mm. in an attempt to curate it down. And I've managed to read a you know, decent, decent amount of comics. So I'm happy about that. Not necessarily many good ones, but I've read them. So... <laughs> <laughs> And then I was like, no, I don't need this anymore. (laughs) I think doing that assessment, that sounds like a really good thing to do. Like, I've been looking at my bookshelf and thinking I should do something like that. Mm. I recommend it. It's so easy to just like, you put it on the, you're like, it's on the shelf. It's fine. I don't need to deal with this again. But it's good to pull it back off the shelf and go, does this still spark joy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay, so uh, what book are, are we doing? Jam? Today, we are going to go through the first bit of the Saga series. So the next two episodes are going to be Saga. Uh, And Saga is a comic book by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. It started in about 20... I should have looked that up. Um, Let's say 2012 or something like that. It's a fairly recent comic. It has not yet completed... But there are nine trade volumes currently released at this time of recording. And that includes up to chapters 54 
of uh, single issues. So today we are reading volume one. Well, today we're doing one, and then the next episode we're going to do two and three. For clarity, that includes up to chapters 18 in single issue. And this entire three books has been recollected into something that has been called Book One Deluxe. So hopefully, <laughs> with that little explanation, uh, you can read as far as we will read, which is to the end of the collected volume three of Saga. Okay. And yeah, spoilers it's, it's... up to the end of volume three, but not for the not for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Right. It's always tricky when publishers do this with comics. They have like multiple different versions of numbering them and like it's so hard to keep track right. of what's actually it going on is but i don't know maybe i'm used to it from manga a lot of the manga that i've been reading have been getting re-released in three in ones mm, yeah i i love it i'm so good <laughs> i i want all my comics to be three in ones and i i will say that like uh i bought the three digital copies and then there was a big sale on the deluxe editions oh. so I don't know if they're doing something right now because it is that time of year to do a bunch of digital sales, but I picked up the Deluxe 2 and Deluxe 3, which means I have six more graphic novels of content <laughs> that I have yet to tackle in addition to the three that we're covering. Oh, I actually I actually missed something. So, <laughs> so yes, with Book 2 Deluxe and Book 3 Deluxe, you will have had everything that has been currently released in Saga. However, all of that, (laughs) book one deluxe, book two deluxe, and book three deluxe have also been recollected. Oh, it's been called Compendium One. I see. (laughs) That's. I feel like that's ominous because that implies there's going to be like a Compendium Two, Compendium Three. It it is a little (laughs) ominous, and I, I, this is one of the few series in my life that I've ever kept relatively current with which is uh, an interesting experience for me, but that does make me feel a little bit daunted of like, <laughs> oh, hey, now. now. Well, it is called Saga, so. <laughs> I, I guess so. But like, uh, d- to, to beware of the reader, I guess, if you accidentally buy Compendium 1, you are investing in uh, like probably a thousand pages of comics. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're only going to be covering like the first... Like, I don't know, like, yeah, third of, of that. So, yeah. but yeah. But if you're listening to this podcast now, I'd say go on Comixology. You might be able to get everything we're going to talk about in two episodes in a single purchase. <laughs> Could happen. That is why we divided it up this way. <laughs> okay, so Jam, do you have some character building questions for us? Because um, it's been an unknown number of months since we last met. And who are you? <laughs> I bet, yeah, like, do we even know who we are ourselves, alone? do our audience know who we are? Oh, I, I think it's a character rebuilding question. Actually. Oh, yeah. Don't say it like that. That's depressing. <laughs> so Saga um, takes its direct inspiration. They say it's inspired for a Star Wars. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn has said that in an interview. So I'm going to open up a flame war and say... <laughs> which is your favorite iteration movie TV series of Star Wars that has been released? Mm. 
<laughs> this is definitely going to cause fights on the internet because that's all Star Wars is for on the internet now. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say that my favorite is Last Jedi, nice. the most controversial of all of them. Um, <laughs> because I really like, and I like, I acknowledge that it had some flaws as well, but I really like how it gave Luke Skywalker an arc that he wouldn't have had otherwise and sort of justified the prequels in a way that I found totally unexpected. Hmm, interesting. And mm. since we're not going to do a whole podcast about Star Wars, that's all I'm going to say about that. That's fair. Oh, also, uh, <laughs> I, the whole point is here to introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Hi, John. Yeah. yeah, all right. Well, I'm Jeff, uh, he, him. And to build off of your statements, Jonathan, uh, I'm going to also throw down with Last Jedi and say I think that was uh, also one of my favorite Star Wars you know I mean obviously I was the right age for the first three so I have sentimental attachments to all of them but something about Last Jedi just like the the way it was sort of deconstructing Star Wars challenging the status quo of Star Wars basically all the reasons most fans hated it are why I liked it and I don't know, I think for me, it was an interesting time because I think like I was dealing with a lot of feelings of like personal failure at the time. And just like to have Luke Skywalker on his journey of like dealing with the fact that he failed to be Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, um, like I was like, wow, like even my childhood hero is like dealing with the same problems I'm dealing with now like I relate to this like I am I am an old grizzled Luke like reconciling with his past like it's great yeah Last Jedi it's fantastic pretty cool all right I'm going to go with a bit of a curveball perhaps I'm going to say that my favorite current iteration of the Star Wars franchise is actually Rogue One and I will tell you why I don't think it's the best film I don't think it's a perfect film. However, when I read a trilogy or experience a trilogy, what I want to have out of it is I want the story in the third chapter to have only been possible if you told the first two chapters. So if you tell a story in the third chapter that kind of retcons what happened in the first, or if it was actually kind of isolated and it was like, oh, and also this happened. And I feel like that's not really what trilogies are for to me. And I feel like that does happen in some versions of Star Wars, but not others. But what I really liked about Rogue One is that it managed to tell a unique story that I feel like depended on all the other lore, but still managed to have 100% unique characters doing unique things. I thought that was really interesting for the Star Wars franchise. I thought it was, it made it made the sprawling lore quote unquote worth it to me. Yeah. So that's my answer. And I'm Jen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was definitely one of the better ones of the recent star Wars is. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting tack. I, it made me feel for the first time. It's like, okay, there is some kind of potential to, to what they're doing here with this property. And I feel like the Mandalorian is starting to expand on that to a certain degree, but I don't want to talk mm. about Mandalorian because not current. <laughs> I've not seen any Mandalorian, so I can't. Go <laughs> I, I uh, no, yeah, Rogue One's great, and uh, yeah, I mean, 
I just started season two of Mandalorian and um, I didn't, I didn't list that because I feel like the one thing I was just talking to someone else about this is that the Mandalorian is really good world building for being in the star Wars universe, but I don't feel like it has as much to say like Rogue Mm -hmm. One had something to say about sacrifice the same way last Jedi had something to say about, you know, uh, failure. Like I just feel like the Mandalorian's fun, but like, I, I honestly kind of forgot what the narrative thrust of the first two episodes I watched was because they just like, it was like really fun, but there wasn't like as much core story to it, you know? Mm, interesting. But anyway, like uh, Star Wars, Saga is a story that takes place in a sprawling universe with many different worlds and many different cultures and a lot of conflict. Uh, and that's what we're going to read today. And so Saga is co-created. So the writer is Brian K. Vaughn and the artist is Fiona Staples, but they are credited as co-creators in this work. So Brian K. Vaughn um, is a very well-known writer in comics. Probably the most famous things he's written include Why the Last Man and Paper Girls, which is his most recent work and was featured in a previous Trade Waiters episode. So if you're curious about Paper Girls, there is an episode for that. But he's also written for TV. He wrote several episodes of Lost, and he was the showrunner for a TV show called Under the Dome, which I think lasted like a season. But he has been writing his first comics published work is in 1996. So he's definitely an industry veteran. He wrote for Marvel. Uh, He wrote for X-Men, Spider-Man, and Captain America. And on the DC side, he's written for Batman and Green Lantern. He's won numerous Eisner Awards, first for Y, then for a series he did called Ex Machina, as well as for Buffy and numerous other stories that he did in uh, Superhero World. The Saga series also netted him Hugo for Best Graphic Story, which is a very prestigious science fiction award. So the artist then, Fiona Staples, is actually a Canadian, born in Alberta. I did not know that. I didn't know that either until I looked it up. And since we're a Canadian (laughs) show, we have to claim it. It's Canadian law. Yes, that's (laughs) Obligatory. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's 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 CanCon right there. So we can say this is CanCon. Fiona's first published comics work was in 2005. As I mentioned, she was credited as co-owner of Saga. So once she was brought into the development of the series, which was originally uh, Brian's idea, but she had a very strong hand in developing where the story would go. She designed the entire cast. And so like, when you think of how the story is written, think of it as co-written. She also did the first couple of issues of Archie, which is another Traitor's book that we have talked about here on the show. Something that I thought was interesting in her biography is that she works primarily digitally, which is not unusual for artists among us. Like for us, it's like totally normal to be working completely digitally front to back. But apparently like in superheroes, it's considered a bit unusual still. Uh, And she says she gets flack for not having pencils that she can sell. (laughs) (laughs) But she works in clip. Okay, cool. I'm like, yeah, Clip Studio, which is a software that I am a huge champion of. So that made me feel cool and smart to also (laughs) work in the same software as Fiona Staples. Uh, (laughs) In her own right, she has won a Schuster for Outstanding Cover Artist before she started on the Saga series. But since starting on Saga, she's been sopping up those Eisners. I'm not even going to listen. There's a lot. 
<laughs> uh, but that's Saga. Yeah. So Saga, as I mentioned, is a sprawling story and primarily it deals with two societies that are at war with each other. One is called Landfall, which is the planet, and one is called Wreath, which is the moon around that planet. And essentially those two worlds have been at war for a long, long time. Uh, and they've managed to rope in basically all of these other exoplanets throughout the, I shouldn't say exoplanets, other planets and systems and worlds throughout the universe have basically been, you know, determined to be the sites of proxy war and have become embroiled either on the landfall side or the wreath side. And the story begins with two people who are on opposite sides of this war. One is Alana, who is from Landfall, and the other is Marco, who is from Wreath. And they have decided, or they have fallen in love with each other and decided to completely try to escape this war and start a new life together. Uh, and that is how book one begins. So I don't know where we want to go from here. Uh, do we want to do first impressions? Yeah, let's do first impressions. Like, had either of you heard of Saga? I guess, have you read it before this podcast? What did you hear about it? What did you think about it? What did you remember about it? Maybe, I don't know. Let me know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Saga has, it's one of those weird books that, like, people constantly recommend. I'm sure, Jam, you've recommended it to me multiple times. I've had other friends who like are just like, oh, you must, you must have read Saga, Jeff. I know you, you just, clearly you must have read all of Saga. And I, I'm like, no, I still haven't. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think I get weird about stuff like that. And people, when they recommend it too much, I get really stubborn and like, I just don't. Like, I don't. Uh, so I, yeah, so I don't know. I, I didn't read Saga until we did this podcast. And uh, and now, I, as I mentioned earlier, I have like the next, I have all of Saga in existence on Comixology now. So I'm going to continue reading it. I have possibly read ahead now and we'll try not to do spoilers uh, outside of volume three. That's but okay. I'll um, let you know where we ended. I en I've enjoyed this series. It made me think a lot about Brian K. Vaughn's writing because we've already done the Paper Girls review and when the pandemic started, I decided it was time to start reading Why the Last Man. So I feel like I'm really marinated in like Brian K. Vaughn-isms. And like, uh, I just sort of felt like I got a sense of his style as a writer. And just like, there's sort of this, there's a weirdness that he injects into things that is just very distinctive. Like, just like the decision to, I mean, I mean, obviously Fiona Stape, I don't know where Fiona made decisions or where Brian made decisions, but like, just like, yeah, just like the weirdness of like the talking alligator shows up or like, just like the, you know, like there's a, you know, like all the weirdness that, that pops up the way the aliens look like creatures you recognize or like someone's like complaining about updating their apps on the Wi-Fi out of nowhere. And it's just, I'm like, this feels very Brian K. Vaughn. This just sort of mm -hmm. feels like the way he approaches the writing. And then, yeah, I mean, um, Fiona Staples art is fantastic. And I, this is more, I guess, something for volume three, but like I just reading all of that stuff in succession, I feel like she really grew as an illustrator, like, because I went back today and I was looking at volume one again and 
I was like, wow, her art got, like, I can't even put my finger on it, but her, her art just continues to get better with each issue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I liked it. Liked a lot. <laughs> Sounds good. John, how um, about you? I think you've read this one before. I have. This is the second time I've read it. And uh, I have kind of mixed feelings about it, I think, only because I'm comparing it to other works by the same people. And Paper Girls is my favorite Brian K. Vaughan series. And I think I actually liked Fiona Hmm. Staples' take on Archie better than her take on Saga. But I I do feel like the second time reading this series, I did enjoy it a lot more than the first time through. Like the first time I was sort of, there were things that kind of bothered me that we, I think it might be actually better to talk about them in our second episode because they're more sort of theme related. Hmm. Uh, Because I have a theory about like the when I read this the second time, I was starting to sort of put pieces together and try and figure out, okay, what are they, what are they actually trying to accomplish here with this story? And I feel like understanding better what their goal is makes me appreciate the work more. Hmm. So like it, it has, it has grown on me for sure. And maybe if I hadn't read paper girls or Archie, I would just, and if this was the only work I knew by these creators, I would just be like, Oh, this is pretty good. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well that's not the way life works yeah <laughs> well that's interesting uh i had read this one before i was the one who recommended it to the group and i did not choose this work because i think it is without flaw i thought it would make an interesting discussion uh so it is not my favorite story in the world but fiona staples might be my favorite artist in the world right now i will say that so like something i I agree that brian k vaughn injects a certain sort of weirdness into his writing it's not necessarily the weirdness that bothers me but there is let's say a perspective that brian k vaughn has in in his work that is not always my favorite but fiona staples art makes anything tolerable to me like i will (laughs) keep reading it if i keep getting to look at Fiona Staples art. I I love the way she draws. I love her choice of moment. I love the way she does gesture. I love the way she does mouths. If that's a little bit weird, I think she draws fantastic children and Mm -hmm. young beings in a way that I don't see successfully done very often. Yeah, especially Um, not in superheroes. They're not just like uh, adults that are drawn foreheads high. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Especially in superheroes is an interesting thing to say, though, because that is honestly one of the first reasons why I read this. I remember the first time I heard about Saga was around the controversy of one of its earlier covers, which is uh, if he heavily features, let's say it it is just breastfeeding. It is just a close-up of the infant Hazel being breastfed is the cover. And at the time that was released, that was like so controversial in comics and it was being like pulled from the shelves and they were like, you can't do this. And they were like, what do you mean? It's life. It's beautiful. You can't censor this. Uh, And ultimately ended up being also heavily featured in one of the the covers of their trades, which I respect. Yeah, too many Uh, other covers. I think they really leaned into that and said, oh yeah, we're going to make that the cover forever. Yeah, (laughs) so like... (laughs) I think that that initially piqued my interest. And then I read the summary and I'm like, you know what, this might be something I can tolerate because this is, you may know from previous trade winners, I'm not a superhero person. I actually find superhero comics very difficult to read, but I'm trying to broaden my horizons. And so Saga, I'm like, this looks like a middle ground. And flipping through the work, I like Fiona Staples' work so much that I decided to pick it up. 
and I started reading it. And like I said, it is one of the only series where I've managed to keep relatively current, which is almost unheard of. It is unheard of. It has never <laughs> happened to me before. So I, I really like this work overall. I think it's, it's interesting. It's interesting enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say like, uh, if we want to get into some like criticisms, I would definitely say that then maybe this is something I noticed just from, from paper girls to the, why the last man to saga is like, I generally find that at, maybe this is connecting to your, like, uh, speaking to a perspective in his writing. But like, I've noticed that Brian K. Vaughn tends to sort of needlessly throw in like triggering language. I'm going to say like, mm-hmm. he'll just sort of like with, without needing to, like he'll just sort of throw in like a word. Then you're like, well, why are you like, you could have picked another word and like, <laughs> it doesn't really like, I know in paper girls, he, he used like, you know, um, the R word. And it was weird, like talking about like, well, that was at the time period. Maybe that was an acceptable word, but you know, even from reading why, and even some from saga, it's like occasionally he just throws like a slur in there and you're just like, what, why that didn't need to be there. Like it just sort of very like free and loose in its like application. Like it's not done with my, it feels, feels like not done with intent. Is this a little sloppy? Mm. To me, I think it is done with intent, but mis misdirected intent. I think it's yeah. it's going for shock factor, mm. but in a cheap way to me. Yeah. 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 No, I, that's, I guess. that's for sure. It's not just the, the language. It's also like specific like plot points are mm. often just like, I, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it. I think I called it progressive edgy. I can't remember exactly. I, what I, I, I hear, I feel what you're edgy, what you're like talking around. And I think yeah. I agree yeah. to me the way it is, is like, I, I call it good boy points. Okay. Where, mm. uh, when a, when it's, let's just say, like, when it's this guy, uh, wants points for being progressive. He will include things in his story, but they're not coming from a genuine place. Mm. They're done for points. Mm. And as a result, they're done kind of clumsily at times. And I see that popping up a lot in saga mm. in a way that that kind of irks me mm. uh but it's still interesting i feel like in my perspective what fiona brings to the work helps but it's not enough i don't mm. know if fiona is honed enough to to really counteract it completely uh and i'm not going to speak to who is responsible for what uh yeah it's a collaborative work they're both yeah. responsible for it yeah yeah, and I do feel at least for for speaking just for myself, because this is obvious as obviously a subjective thing, but it's not enough to like wreck the story for me. Like I still enjoy reading it, but it's like slightly annoying. Yeah. Slightly annoying. And to me it's interesting because like you said, you like paper girls a bit better, I think. Uh-huh. I found it more annoying in paper girls. Okay. To a point mm. where after what we read, I'm like, I can't continue. <laughs> I actually no, I actually did go back and I read book three. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I was like, no, this is it. I can't continue. <laughs> I think it did less of that in like subsequent volumes of Paper Girls. Like okay. the, most of the incidents like that that I remember were in this at the beginning. Mm, okay. <laughs> it did turn me off the series for sure. Sure, for yeah. Sure. I'm like, oh, there isn't Fiona Staples redeeming this. <laughs> it had Cliff Chiang. He's pretty good. <laughs> He's pretty good. No, for sure. But it's not like, I'm not drooling over everything. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, um, maybe just to like 
to circle back to Fiona Staples a little bit, I will say I have, I have a criticism of the art and I'd be curious your thoughts on this jam because for me, I found it a little bit off-putting maybe is just the way that all the backgrounds were like really painted and airbrushed and like soft. And then the characters are these like traditional like black ink line renders. And it sort of made it feel like an animation cell on a painted background. Interesting. And I don't know. I mean, like, I don't have a problem with painted backgrounds per se. I don't have a problem with like mixing things up, but like, I just felt like she put so much care into the figures and then it felt like sometimes the backgrounds just felt a little bit like phoned in sometimes Mm. compared to the figures. I don't know that it was phoned in. I would say that it definitely reflects a strength and a weakness. Uh, and it is a weakness, I would agree. But like for me, like I love those gestures so much that I don't want anything to distract from them. Mm. So I, it's also a choice where it's like she knows where her strengths are and yeah. she's, she's choosing to bring that to the forefront. And yeah. like it's, it's definitely not environmental story- storytelling. I think it does get better in subsequent issues. Uh, yeah, I think definitely like in say like an action sequence having a, a blurry background i was like oh yeah whatever but i think there's a few times with like establishing shots where you know like there's like a, an establishing shot on like sextillion and it was all airbrushed smooth painted and then there's just a crisp drawn figure in the foreground and i was just like well this is establishing the world like that should be maybe more rendered and then later it can be airbrushed when it's in the background but yeah, just sometimes it felt like a little excessive to me. Um, yeah, I think I think this is first of all why I liked her work better in Archie because I think that approach works a lot better if you don't have if the art doesn't have to do any of the world building work mm-hmm. because Archie takes place in a, a recognizable like present day mm-hmm. American town and you don't need to have like all the details drawn in to know what's going on and understand the setting. Whereas a story like this, one thing that I feel is lacking is kind of the, the world building side of things. Um, but then that ties into like, this is what I was talking about that kind of bothered me. Or one of the things that bothered me when I first started reading this is like, oh, I want, I want the thing that Star Wars does where it has like a, f- a world that feels fleshed out even though it really isn't. Like George mm-hmm. Lucas hadn't actually figured out everything about his world, but it looked like he had because he just threw enough stuff in that your brain just kind of like pieces it all together and imagines what the rest of the world is. And the art isn't necessarily doing that in Saga, uh, at least for the backgrounds. But I do feel like there's an intent to it. I do feel like there's, mm. it's not an accident. And but I like, I want to use the evidence from volumes two and three to like support that point. So right. come back Fair to that. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you that the world does not feel as fleshed out as it does in Star Wars. And maybe it's unfair comparing <laughs> a two person project to a sprawling multiverse that is <laughs> controlled by a global multinational corporation. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah it, I definitely felt myself struggling a little bit to be like, okay, you got landfall and raid, landfall and raid, and there's proxy wars, sure. But like, uh, what what role does the robot kingdom play in this again? I'm a little bit confused. And like, 
how does rank work? And it, it just, a lot of it felt not fleshed out to the point of being unclear. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I, I struggled with a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, can I tell about talking about something that I did really like about this? Yes. Um, I think the characters are absolutely the strong point of this series, both in the writing and the art where they just feel really, really authentic. Like they, they seem like they could be real people. Like there's yeah. nothing I can criticize the, the character work I, on at all. Hard you, agree. Yeah. As much as I was like complaining about maybe like the way he uses language sometimes, like I would say that when the characters talk, they feel like people like you're like, Oh, I've heard someone talk like that. Like that's the way someone would say that. Like the, the dialogue always feels very natural and it really, yeah. You get a sense of the people when they're talking, you really feel who they are. Yeah. Characters are really well done. And I mean, this is a positive for Fiona staple uh, character design was just mm. like so great. Like I, I didn't have nightmares about the stock. <laughs> <laughs> for weeks <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean that's like i think with this type of story where it takes place in a completely fictional world that's maybe the most important thing is to have characters you can relate to that you can that can sort of pull you into the story i think when star wars hasn't worked it's often been because characters are not fleshed out and don't feel believable and then you don't care what happens to them Mm -hmm. But I care about all these characters. You mean like the secondary and tertiary characters that you only see for like a few pages. Like they've done the work to make you care about everybody. And that's like, that has value. That's important, I think. Yeah. I, I agree with that as well. And I think it's so important to carry a kind of ensemble cast like they're building here. Uh, it's, it's interesting because in book one, so I wrote down all the characters that were introduced to just in book one, and I'm going to list them now because it's <laughs> impressive. We mm -hmm. have Alana, the, the landfall soldier. We have Marco, the wreath soldier. We have Hazel, their child. We have Prince Robot the Fourth. We have the Will and Lion Cat and the introduction of the whole concept of freelancers. We have the stock. We have the ghost, Isabel. We have Oswald Heiss, who was first introduced in concept. We have Gwendolyn, who was introduced as Marco's fiance. We have uh, the girl on Sextillion. She's just referred to as girl in this book. And that's, and at the very end, Marco's parents. Yeah. So that's for a, a single trade. Yeah. That's a lot <laughs> of characters. And what's really impressive about Saga is that they managed to, to bring them in so quickly, right? You know, like mm. very quickly, you get a sense of a character. Very quickly, you develop an attachment to the character. And so in subsequent books, when you flip the scene and you're with a different character in a different scene, you're like, oh, cool, these guys. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm excited yeah. to read more about these people. And like, oh, I'm sure we'll get back to Marco and Alana later. Like, yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, reading the issues kind of back to back, uh, I really appreciated how they took advantage of the serialized format. And so it's like they'll leave you on a cliffhanger and then the next chapter no, we're somewhere else now. Or like we're 10 minutes before that happened. And yeah, it was interesting the way that that was paced out. Like kind of these false cliffhangers or just like these cliffhangers that don't, because in traditional superhero comics, your cliffhanger leads into the inception scene of the next issue where this is like, there's no guarantee that when you turn that 
uh, chapter title page that it's going to continue from where the the previous page left you off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen that done in manga, but I have not seen that done as much in superhero. Uh, Naruto does that a lot. Hmm. I've been rewatching Naruto and oh. they'll leave a cliffhanger and then go group, go to another group of characters who are also in a precarious situation. And you're like, oh, right. I forgot <laughs> these guys. Oh, no. Well, that cliffhanger, <laughs> shit. Yeah, right. This does seem like this would be the ideal way to do a superhero story where it's got that like every like 24 page issue has action and has lots of characters and leaves you on a cliffhanger, but it all kind of hangs together in saga in a way that I don't think superheroes necessarily do very well. It's reminding um, me of X-Men. I wish X-Men mm, were more like that. Yes. And I feel like some iterations of X-Men get close. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Like this would be the perfect way to do X-Men, but it's often not this. I was going to say this, this to me feels a little bit like uh, the Chris Claremont years of X-Men when mm. he had an, an arc for all his characters and he took his characters through those arcs and they changed as people while still being superheroes in these 24 page episodes. But then like when he was done his arcs and he left and new writers came in, then suddenly it's like, okay, and now we're just stuck. And this is just now we're, this is our status quo now forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, <laughs> that's where X-Men hasn't been able to do that is because they, even if they hang on to a creative team for like a few years, that's what a couple of volumes worth of what saga would be. And mm -hmm. then it's like a whole new team with new ideas and they're going to start new arcs. And so like the, a big part of the strength of this series is that it's just the two people working on it from beginning to end, hopefully. And um, like you can do a lot more storytelling wise with like that number of people rather than, like uh, like 20 different people over 10 years or whatever. Yeah, and, and changes seem to be permanent in this world. Uh, characters mm -hmm. die uh, often, <gasps> and like they are permanently transformed. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, the no. stock, we were kind of, I, I, pretty sure this, yeah, this is in the first volume. Yeah, 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 it is in the first yeah. volume. So uh, it, we're teased a couple times that the stock returns, but I don't think she does. I think she dies the one time and then every other time we see her, it's just like a flashback or a dream or a hallucination. Yeah. Like that's yeah. it. She's done. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised that I think that was the first death that like actually shocked me reading this series is like they built up the stock, right. As like the ultimate freelancer and like, even like, like the will who I really like the will too, but like the will finds out the stock is involved. He's like, ah, I'm just going to go to sextillion. I don't care anymore. And like, and then just robot Prince robot four, just out of nowhere. Just, and you're like, what? No, she can't be dead. What? Like, yeah, that's crazy. And then that triggers all of this pathos for the will. Like, and, and, and again, like you don't see, you never see the stock and the will together in the same scene in the beginning of this series. You just, you have the one phone call between them and yet you still like kind of understand why the will suddenly just goes off and gets super depressed and like <laughs> has to find his groove again, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I'd like, uh, I'm going to tie this into other pop culture things here, but when 
Doctor Who is good and it's not always good, it does this same thing where characters who die have to be characters that you care about first, mm-hmm. where that's kind of the price that if a character death is going to be worth it for the story, you should care about that character first. And I think it's worth putting in that time, even though you're, you're not going to then have that character have an arc, like that death matters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's important. You don't like, if you kill your characters off too freely, it forces you to start having to bring them back. And then when you do that, it just means nothing. And then nobody cares anymore. And then you've got mainstream superhero comics. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, which is your favorite character of who's been introduced in this first book? That's There's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I like, I don't know. I was going to say like the will, but I feel like I actually like the will better in volume two and three. I think it's okay to include characters that you don't know but, as much about in this yeah. one because like we learn so much more about all the characters in the other volumes. Yeah. I mean like was it Isabel the ghost? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I just like Isabel the sassy ghost uh, <laughs> is overall just a pretty great character. Yeah. She's an interesting <laughs> character because she's definitely she feels like a real teen. Mm. Yeah. And it's the way she's brought in and she's like whoa you think we're like, we're the ones who are native to this world that you're trampling all over. Like, why did you think we would just go? Right. (laughs) And uh, they're interesting kind of lore of like, Oh, I have to bond with something and that's the only way I can leave the planet. And that's, I don't know. All of that was like super, super interesting with Isabel. Mm. I really like the way her character worked. And then there's like, I can't remember if it's in this volume or the other two, but we eventually get sort of hints that she's actually much, much older because she's been a ghost and we don't know how long she's been a ghost. I think Um, it's later. Yeah. But like that's, it doesn't undermine the character of her that we've established so far, but it's just this sort of added depth that is just kind of like snuck Mm. in. Yeah. Yeah. I um, also really liked line cat. Oh, line cat's Um, great. Line cat (laughs) is probably one of my favorite, most favorite characters. Um, Um, I I love that concept. Yeah. Uh, like I don't usually have protagonists as my favorite characters, but I think I really like Alana and Marco that they're just Mm. so well fleshed out and they like work so well as a couple and like they, they're really believable as a couple. Uh, it given like a backstory that's kind of, kind of a stereotypical fantasy sci-fi backstory where they haven't really known each other very long and they've like fallen in love and it's like this, one true love that's going to like totally rearrange their lives. But you believe it with these two. And, yeah. and I like that. I also I, like the idea of having like this type of story where your main characters are parents, because that's not something you see very often where like, usually it's like characters at a different stage in their life and not at this specific stage. Yeah. Yeah. Parenthood I, was uh, one of the other uh, direct inspirations for the work. Uh, mm. according to Brian like he, he wrote mm. it shortly after the birth of his second child and he's like I just really want to see authentic parenthood reflected in the pages here nice and I, yeah. I do think that comes through I think like it is really interesting to start your protagonist off with an infant with like day one infancy <laughs> and like they're they're like 
they don't know how to feed her at first, you know, and they're like, oh, we feel so tired. Also, we're running for our lives in this forest and things are trying to kill us. Oh, my God. And like, and it is really interesting, I think, the way that it is portrayed of them not knowing that much about themselves, about each other. Mm -hmm. So things like how Marco does magic and Alana still doesn't really understand how magic works and doesn't work. And (laughs) yeah, I really liked how they handled magic in this series. I thought that was really well done. It's really interesting having, I mean, this is where it makes it like very much like Star Wars where you have technology and magic kind of interacting with each other. But uh, I was just going to say, I, one of my notes that I put in here was, I believe in Alana and Marco. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. So who, right. Jam, who was your favorite character? I don't think you told us yet. I don't know. Uh, I think later on, I also really like the Will. I think the Will goes through an interesting arc. But early on, I, I, I kind of latched onto Alana. Like, I, I think she's got, she's written in a way that I don't see often. And I like her kind of, it, it is kind of like a grittiness. It's not, it doesn't quite approach sassiness. I don't think sassy is the right word, but she's got like a direct kind of gruffness that I really like in a character. Uh, and she feels like someone that I know and I like mm. that about her. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. We haven't done like a plot summary and there's a lot of plot. Yes, yeah. there is. So I can I can kind of go through that if you want. Sure. So Just we... in case people are confused and they've read this and forgot what volume what <laughs> constitutes volume one. Yeah. yeah. So we start with Alana and Marco, and they are in the process, or Alana is in the process of giving birth to their child, who is later named Hazel. Uh, they are born on a planet called Cleave, which is one of the controlled planets, and Prince Robot the Fourth, who is. Or I guess there was another robot who was sent to deal with them who ended up getting killed in that first fracas. But Prince Robot the Fork gets brought in and says, like, this is a huge problem. So a, re- a relationship and especially a child between someone from Landfall and someone from Wreath is considered a PR nightmare. And so Prince Robot the Fourth is basically assigned. He's just come back from the front. He's got some damage and they're like, they're sending him back out. They're like, you, you got to deal with this. You got to shut this down and uh, erase it. So he's sent out on that mission. Concurrently, other people are sent out on the mission to destroy Hazel and Alana and Marco, one of them being the Will, who is from an organization called Freelancers. Basically, I guess you could say freelancers are the bounty hunters of this world. They'll they'll work for money and they'll they'll kill almost anyone. Uh, So the Will is uh, the being kind of a freelancer title is contracted to find Alana and Marco and end this problem. Uh, his sidekick is Lion Cat, who is a giant cat who can tell instantly if someone is lying and does so by saying lying in a really cool <laughs> way. So uh, Alana and Marco manage to escape the first brush with the people who are trying to kill them. And they, they're they running around on Cleave. They're trying to find a way off of Cleave and they don't really know how they're going to get off Cleave at this point. But I think there was a map that they were given that said yeah. that there was a, a rocket forest. Mm-hmm. So if they could just get to this ancient forest full of rockets, then they could find one and escape. Uh, so they're running through the forest, but unfortunately there are demons in the forest or some kind of monsters that are not great. Uh, and 
in trying to fight off these demons, they encounter a ghost, a native ghost of that world, who turns out to be Isabel and tells them, look, if you bond me to your child, I'll help get you out of here. And so in desperation, they agree. Isabel becomes bonded to Hazel and she helps them get to the Rocket Forest. Meanwhile, we discover some other stuff. For example, uh, in investigating, I think it's Robot the Fourth who first discovers this. Why did Alana fall in love with Marco? Well, Marco was a prisoner of war and Alana was kind of a D-tier kind of guard at the facility. And she had read this book by someone named Heist. And it was a trashy romance novel, but a trashy romance novel with some kind of pacifist message. And that message got through to Alana and it got through to Marco and they bonded over this. So the robot, I think, decides to chase down that lead. Meanwhile, (laughs) another person is out to get the two of them and it is Marco's uh, ex-fiancee, who I think bumps into the will at some point. But maybe not in this Oh, book. yes. Yeah, Gwendolyn. Uh, yeah, Gwendolyn shows up in this volume briefly. Briefly. Yeah. So the the Will does have a phone call with Stock. So he figures out that he's not the only freelancer who's been contracted to, to get this couple. There's lots of other people. And he's like, well, I've got this white card. All expenses paid. So I'm just going to go to this. I don't know, sex house, sex planet. Broth- brothel planet. Brothel planet. <laughs> and have a good time. Unfortunately, fortunately, he runs into uh, an underage sex slave and decides, you know, to grow a moral compass spontaneously uh, and to rescue this girl, which uh, does not go easily. No, that was interesting as a plot. Because, like, you would think the easy plot would be just, oh, he finds her, rescues her. But no, he doesn't. He has to, like, leave and come back later. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, this is, I made notes about this particular plot point because I sort of, when it first, when they like incepted it, I felt like it, it felt just so cliche. Like we have this heartless killer mercenary, but there's one line he's not going to cross. And so like, he's going to kill this pedophile ring and then, you know, he's a good guy. And I like, and that's not like, like, I understand the intent of like, when you're talking about good good guy points. I'm just like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. So he crushes the head of this sex trafficker. So now we're on his side, I guess. But like, <laughs> um, I, so I was a little like, oh, this just feels very like ham-fisted. And, but then, yeah, when he's trying to leave with the girl and they're like, oh yeah, she's got an injection. And if she leaves the planet, she's going to die. And so he has to just like give up and he's like so defeated by this and he's like obsessed with rescuing the girl that part was more interesting and like we can talk about this in the next episode but like the way the girl resolves it like to me just like i forgave it the rough beginning because of the ending of that Mm. arc yeah yeah i agree it kind of had a rough beginning so it was just the setup in this uh in this point so the book kind of ends with uh the stock coming to Cleve to find Marco and Alana, unfortunately running into Prince Robot the Fourth instead and getting killed in short order. And then, but Robot the Fourth is too late. Marco and Alana have found a rocket ship and uh, have blasted off. But right at the end of the book, turns out two other people from Wreath this time who are also out to get them teleport onto the transport and 
but at the last moment we discover actually it's Marco's parents. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Now, dun 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 dun. Like our... one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, we're actually almost out of time for our first episode. Uh, we'll yeah. have lots more to talk about next episode. Uh, anyone Clearly. want to say anything else about Volume One? It's a very powerful setup. I think it, I, it, it like this is a book that is a really strong hook. Yeah, that's he, one thing I'll say about Brian K. Vaughan. He's very good at setup. Yeah, um, I was worried all through Paper Girls that he wouldn't be able to go like be as strong on follow through, and at least for that series, he was. I thought. This one, uh, there is no ending to read yet, so yeah. none of us Can't can comment say. on it. <laughs> Can't say. It might be another we'll lost. Well, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would, I mean, we, we can talk about this next episode, but I, I mean, I feel like the individual arcs seem to have some good follow through. But uh, I just wanted to say, like, I thought the idea of a tree rocket was uh, really cool. Just this idea that, like, it's not a rocket ship, it's, it's a tree, and you offer it something, and then it becomes your like becomes your ship but it's yeah. like an organic living like i don't know that was really cool i really like that yeah i liked it too and i think the design of that ship was really fun and nice yeah so next episode we are going to be reading volumes two and three of saga um and i totally forgot i don't have our usual quote at the end but i'll just copy it from well, the we- episode we don't use the same quote because we're not recording at the Vancouver Public Library anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Zoom, for being Zoom. Yeah. And find us online, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Are we Google doing... Google Trade Waiters, we're there somewhere. 